Well, good morning and greetings from Perimeter Church. It's great to be here. Uh, there's, there's a couple things you should probably know about me. Um, one is my better half, who's not here with me this morning, Mallory. Uh, she and I have been married for just shy of 14 years, which kind of blows my mind because it means I've gotten old. In fact, when, when Erica, I don't know where she is now, was saying that I was her first boss, that was 10 years ago. And she was my first hire. And since then, uh, my family has kind of exponentially grown. Uh, I've got four little girls, uh, an eight-year-old named Mary Neal, twin six-year-olds named Lucy and Alice, and then a two-and-a-half-year-old named Maggie who helped me prepare this sermon this morning. And uh, it's a chaos in our house, pretty much constantly. And like a lot of young families during the summer, uh, we spend, as a family, a lot of time in the car. We're constantly traveling places, we're going to visit family, we're going on trips. And one of the things that I probably should have guessed as someone who was once a young child himself is that when you get in cars with your family and you go on long trips, not everybody has the same opinion about the things that you're doing. Uh, in fact, it oftentimes seems that there's as many different reactions as there are people in the car. If I tell a dad joke, which I do way too often, I'll, I'll have one girl just break into hysterical laughter. I'll have another girl start giggling, not because she understood what I said, but just because her sister's doing it and she thinks that's cool. One of them will ignore me, and the fourth, the fourth will break into tears because they somehow think I've offended them, and I'm not sure how. Uh, if we turn on music and play a song, one child will start singing, two of them will just act like nothing's changed, and one child, not always the same one, will break into tears. If we pass out food, it doesn't matter what it is, it could be gummy bears, it could be Chick-fil-A, one of them will gobble that food down, two of them will nibble at it, and the fourth, you guessed it, she will cry. It's a pattern in the click house. One family in the same car, in the same moment, experiencing the same thing, and yet the responses, they are nowhere close to the same. What's happening? You know, that's, that's a mystery that we see in all of life. It shows up on a Saturday night when you're trying to get your friends to choose one restaurant that you can all agree on, or when you're flipping through Netflix and trying to get something that both you and your spouse are actually going to like. But there's one place where that mystery is deeper than any other, and that's when it comes to the word of the gospel. Because when we come to this word, if there is one reality one truth you would think would receive universal embrace, you would think it would be this word. Because what is this word? It is the word of which we just sang, of the worthy one who is able to take all things and make them new. Who restores broken people and broken places and does so at the cost of his own life. And yet what every person in this room knows from personal experience is not everyone responds to that word in the same way, do they? Some people hear that word and they hate it. Some people hear that word and get excited and then life gets hard and they walk away. And then others of us, Maybe like many of you in this room, you have heard that word, believed that word, trusted that word, and been changed by that word. But it hasn't borne exactly the fruit you expected, has it? 
And it certainly hasn't done it at the speed you expected. I mean, if I'm honest here, I've been walking with Jesus now for almost 20 years. And I thought at this point that I would have the gentleness of Mr. Rogers and the evangelistic heart of Francis Schaeffer. I have none of those things. <laughs> What's happening? Why does this kingdom, this word that you would think would seem so strong, why so often does it look not strong but weak? Mark 4 is Jesus' answer. I mean, as you as a church have walked through the gospel of Mark, you've noticed that Mark, he doesn't just beat around the bush. He tells you exactly what he intends to do. Mark 1, verse 1, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And just in case you didn't get the memo, as soon as Jesus' ministry begins, God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And everything Jesus does, everything he says, everything that happens proclaims that reality to be the truth. The blind are seen, demons are fleeing, the lame are walking, the sick are being healed. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of this kingdom and saying this is not for the righteous, it's not for the holy, it's not for the good, it is for sinners that I have come. And he's not just proclaiming it, he's embodying it. He's not inviting just the religious and the leaders into his presence. He's taking in the tax collectors and the prostitutes, not just as those he's willing to sit around, but as those with whom he will eat at his own table. He's entreating them as intimate friends. And yet, what is it that you see as you walk through the first three chapters of Mark? The response to Jesus, it's varied, isn't it? I mean, we're barely three chapters in, and the religious leaders already want to kill Jesus. The, the crowds are flocking to him, but based on Jesus' response, they're not flocking to him for the right reasons. And Jesus, Jesus' own family, in the verses just before the text we just heard read, his mother and his brothers, they come to seek out Jesus and yet, based on Jesus' own words, his family's not on the inside looking out. His family's on the outside looking in. They don't even understand who he is. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he has just this small band of disciples, people that, frankly, only Jesus could love. And as you walk through the Gospel of Mark, they don't seem to understand him either. What's happening? What kind of kingdom is this? Jesus says, I'll tell you what kind of kingdom it is. It's a hidden kingdom. A kingdom that doesn't come in what looks like power, but instead in what looks like weakness. And yet that very weakness is the power of God to save. And as Jesus so often does, he digs into that reality with a parable. In verses 1 and 2, we're told that Jesus is sitting in a boat looking at the seashore, and there's this crowd lined up in front of him, all of them listening as he teaches them, it says, in parables, meaning multiples. 
He's giving them these pictures, these stories that are drawn from everyday life that are intended to communicate realities about this kingdom that he has come to bring. And then in verse 3, we're told that he tells them one last parable, a parable that is more important than any of the others because Jesus, in verse 3, he says this. He gives a command. He says, listen, pay attention to what I'm about to say because there is more here than meets the eye. This is something you need to know. And then he tells this disorienting, strange story that is both familiar and unfamiliar all at the same time. There is a sower sowing seeds, something that everybody in the audience would have seen every day of their lives. Many of them were probably doing this themselves. I mean, this is an agrarian society. But here's the problem. The sower's doing everything wrong. In the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral tradition, there are rules about how you're supposed to sow seeds. You're supposed to do it in a way that is orderly and methodical and careful, in a way that minimizes the waste. You are protecting each seed because you want to make sure that that seed bears fruit. But Jesus' sower, he defies all of that, doesn't he? He's just carelessly throwing seeds everywhere that he can. There seems to be no method. There's no order. He looks reckless, even wasteful. He's throwing seeds on ground where there is absolutely no hope of there ever being fruit. It looks like foolishness. And yet, what does Jesus say about the last soil? Some seed falls on good soil. And that seed it doesn't just bear a little fruit. It doesn't even bear normal fruit. It bears miraculous fruit. It is Jack's bean falling to the ground and when he wakes up, leaving a beanstalk that stretches to the heavens. It is 30, 60, 100 fold, a miraculous harvest that should not be possible. And then Jesus returns to the theme with which he began. Listen, verse 9 let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so you would think at this moment, Jesus will then unpack what it is he's talking about. Jesus will now explain why he's just told this parable, what it means, why it was so important that everyone should listen. The crowd is probably leaning forward going, all right, Jesus, tell us what you mean. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus leaves. <laughs> he just quits. He walks away. And you know that's what he does because what do the disciples do in response? It says in verse 10, when he's alone, when he's alone, meaning the crowd's not there anymore, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. They have questions, don't they? Now, Mark doesn't tell us what the questions are. He doesn't lay out for us exactly what their concerns are. All he tells you is this. One, they don't just, it's not just that they don't understand the one parable. They don't understand any of them. And so now they're coming to Jesus and they're going, Jesus, what are you talking about? We love you. We recognize in you the presence of God in the world, but these stories don't make any sense to us. Why don't you just speak plainly? 
I mean, the, the religious leaders want to kill you. The crowds are flocking to you for the wrong reasons. Why don't you just tell us what you mean? Isn't that the reason you've come? And Jesus responds in a way that honestly is as confusing as the parable. This is, Jesus just loves to do this. He says in verse 11, to you, to my disciples, to those who have seen in me the presence of God in the world to save, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. God has opened your eyes and your hearts to see me as I am, not because you earned it, but simply because God delights to give it. But for those outside, for those like the religious leaders, for those like Jesus' family, who have stumbled on the rock that is Christ, Everything, everything, including Jesus and his person, everything is in parables. And why is this the case? Jesus says, quoting Isaiah 6, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What? <laughs> it's not a straightforward answer, is it? He's answered a parable with what sounds like another parable. It's a riddle wrapped up in a puzzle. And the best way that I can think of explaining it is by giving you yet another picture. One that comes at the very end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. Now, if you've not read that book, you don't need to know the plot for this to make sense, so just don't worry about that. At the very end of The Last Battle, there is this cataclysmic battle between good and evil that's taking place. And evil seems to be winning, and good seems to be losing, and this little band of heroes, this, this group that in the midst of Narnia is still loyal to Aslan, who's the sort of Jesus figure in the stories, they are surrounded on all sides, and one by one, they are being seized and thrown through this door into a stable that everyone outside thinks is full only of darkness and dirt and death. There is something evil, they think, that lurks therein, that devours whoever comes to those doors and destroys them in full. But as soon as the stable door slams shut and the heroes open their eyes, they discover that things are not what they expected at all. It's not darkness and dirt and death inside the stable. It's a universe full of light and beauty and life. Everywhere they look is a world more beautiful than any they have ever seen before, so beautiful they're afraid to touch the things in it. And yet they're told that everything they see is theirs, that they look at their bodies that were covered in sweat and grime from the battle and suddenly realize they are cleaner than they have ever been in their whole lives. And the rags that they were wearing, which had been torn apart by the battle, they've been replaced by the robes of kings and queens. And they notice standing in the midst of this world, there's the door 
attached to no stable, just standing there, and one of them leans over and he puts his eye to the keyhole and he peers through and he sees the world that they left. Dark and dirty, full of enemies wondering what's happened to those inside the stable. And he turns and he smiles at his friends and he says this, It seems then that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, this world, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Jesus says that's how parables work. For those on the inside who in Christ have passed through the stable door, the parables are an invitation into a newer and better reality. It is an invitation to come further up and further in into the beauty of what God has done in Christ. But for those outside, for those who look on Jesus and see not the one who is bigger than the world, but instead just a man and ultimately just a cross. For them, the very parables that were graced to some, those parables will become judgment. And the darkness will grow darker still. They'll see the stable in his door but not the glory therein. And it all centers on just one question. Who do we believe Jesus to be? That's it. The disciples must have looked confused because Jesus then goes, do you still not understand? If you don't understand this, he says, you're not going to understand any of the other parables and so Jesus begins to finally explain. And at the heart of his explanation, it's not, it is just one question. It's not how smart you are or your ability to kind of mentally work your way through the parable. It's not how good you are, how righteous you are, what others think of you. No, he says there is just one thing that matters, one thing that you need to grasp, and it's this. How are you responding to the word of the gospel? Jesus says that's the seed that the sower is sowing. The sower is sowing the seed of the word and there is one thing that distinguishes each of the four soils. It's not the content of that word. It is simply this. How are people responding to that word? Jesus is saying, in essence, you want to know what my ministry is? It's this. I'm the sower who sows the seed who is seemingly recklessly throwing it at the soil of your hearts. And the thing that matters most is how are you responding to me? You see it in the explanation. Jesus says of the first soil, there's the soil that the, the, the seed that fell along the pathway where the birds snatch it away. We, the soil that you might call the hard heart. It says in verse 15, 
And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. I mean, if you want a picture of this in Jesus' gospel, this is the religious leaders. The, the word has come, but it just bounces off their hearts like a rubber ball off of a brick wall. It just goes nowhere. They don't want to hear the word. Satan doesn't want them to hear the word, and so he snatches the word away. There's no joy, no excitement, no wonder, just enmity, incredulity, or apathy. It goes nowhere. But then Jesus says there's another soil, the rocky soil, or what you might call the shallow heart, verse 16. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word, notice that repetition, immediately receive it with joy. They're like a teenager at Thanksgiving. They're just gobbling it up. But they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They hear the word, but the roots, the roots only go skin deep. It's someone for whom they will walk with Jesus so long as the perceived benefits outweigh the perceived costs. And when the cost seems too high, this person, this person abandons ship. And what is striking to me is that as you walk through the Gospel of Mark, who does this seem to be? It's the disciples. Because what happens when Judas comes with a band of men to arrest Jesus? And Jesus, instead of resisting the cross, Jesus embraces it. The disciples do what? They flee immediately. One of them, in what I think is one of the funnier verses in the Bible, he gets so scared he leaves his clothes behind. And so you've just got a naked disciple running through the woods. Peter, zealous Peter, Jesus, I'm never going to leave your side. I'll die with you, Jesus. Peter, at the side of the cross, what does Peter do? I do not know this man. I do not know this man. I do not know this man. As soon as the perceived cost seems to outweigh the perceived benefits, every single one of them flees. And while the beginning may look different than the soil that fell on the path, the hard heart, the end, the end is exactly the same, isn't it? And then Jesus says there's a third soil. This would be the soil, the seed that falls in the thorny ground or what you might call the cluttered heart. And this is the one that, if I'm honest, alarms me the most. Look at what it says in verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. The first two soils are easy, aren't they? In both of those, it's kind of clear where the person stands. In the first one, there's just cold resistance. The gospel goes nowhere. In the other one, there's a joyous receptivity, but it ends. Immediately, they fall away. They abandon ship. But do you notice what's different about this soil? It doesn't say that they, are, they deny Jesus. It doesn't say they abandon Jesus. 
It doesn't say that they cease to confess Jesus. It just says this, the cares of this world that are alive in their hearts, they have choked the gospel out. They have taken that word and they have made it unfruitful, which means he's not talking about people outside the church. He's talking about those who are within it. It could be you. It could be me. You know, there's been this rash of documentaries lately about abuses in the church, and Mallory and I, for, maybe we're gluttons for punishment. We keep watching them. And there is this theme that just seems to keep appearing over and over again as I watch these things. It is that so often the people perpetuating the abuse are not people who are denying Christ. They're not people who are calling themselves non-Christians and saying they've abandoned the church. It's people that are still confessing the name of Christ. The trouble is this, they've married Jesus to something else. And then they have used Jesus to justify that thing. They are like a person who has tried to marry two brides, Jesus and power, Jesus and money, Jesus and sex, Jesus and politics, Jesus and some other thing. And in trying to marry two brides, they end up being faithful only to one. And there are times when we see this reality play out where you can look and go, that is someone who is baptizing sin in the name of Jesus. They are using grace as an excuse to live any way that they want. But there's also another way that shows itself. One of my favorite theologians is this old dead Dutch guy named Herman Bovink. And he says this, he goes, there's some who silence the Holy Spirit and silence their consciences and plunge into crude sins. But he says there's also this. There's some who adopt a middle course, turn from coarse sins, those more socially unacceptable ones, become staid and religious in their walk, attend church, become zealous advocates for the church, missions, etc., Such people often become hypocrites. They bend their heads like a bulrush. They bow their heads in prayer. Torture their souls the whole day with fasting and spread sackcloth and ashes over themselves. Among them we often find the critics, the nitpickers, those who never come to the point of being born again and missed all spiritual life but still use the standard preparatory experience, their baptisms, their church attendance, their memory of some retreat they were on years ago, and boast about it. They are like a foolish child who's too busy to be born. It's someone for whom there is some degree of external conformity, but no internal reality. Someone who has the appearance of godliness, but none of its power. And here is why I say this one frightens me. It looks like religion. I mean, who among us, who among us can say, I have a heart that is free from the cares of this world? I can't. And yet, what is Jesus warning us of right here? If those cares are not tended, 
if they are not put to death, not only can they choke out gospel life, they will. They can take what once looked vibrant and reduce it to an unfruitful husk. That's the first three soils. But then Jesus mentions one soil more. The good soil. Or what we might call the receptive heart. Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. I want us to hear this because this is the burning question. What makes the good soil good? The good soil is not good people. The good soil is bad people who by the grace of God have seen a good Christ. It's people who have had their eyes opened and their ears opened to the beauty of God's work in Christ and who in the light of Jesus have seen that their need of him it is greater than they could ever comprehend. And yet there is one in that Savior who is sufficient to meet them at every point of need whose love for them is greater than they could have ever imagined. It's people who when Jesus says to them, as he says to his disciples in John 6, do you want to go away from me as well? Do you want to leave just like everybody else? Say with Peter, Lord, where else can we go? Because you and you only have the words of eternal life. In all the other soils, the pathway, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, there is this thing happening that in our English translations, it just doesn't stick out. Three times Jesus has said of those soils, they hear the word. And here's what the English translations don't show you. That verb, every time, is in what we call the aorist tense. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's totally fine. It just means this. It is something that has happened in the past. It, it is a word that was heard and then forgotten. It is a word that went in one ear and then after some period of time went out the other and had absolutely no in impact in the end. In verse 20, the tense changes. It's not in the error's tense. It's in the present. The good soil is the person who hears now and ongoingly. It's the person who day after day, moment by moment, comes to the feet of Jesus and passes through that stable door because they have come to see that the way they bear fruit is not in their own power. It's not in their own strength. It's in His. It is by allowing the sower and His seed to transform us from the inside out. That's the good soil. That's the way God's hidden kingdom comes and his hidden kingdom grows and notice the fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. And here is what I think is key to understanding this text. The kind of soil that we appear to be right now may not be the soil we are proved to be at the end. And just think about this for a second. 
Who do the disciples seem to be at the beginning of this? They're not the good soil, seemingly. They're the rocky soil. And yet what do every single one of them, apart from Judas, prove to be in the end? Good soil. Even after they abandoned him and ran away. Jesus pursues his sheep. The question is what kind of soil are we right now? And what will we be on the day that Jesus returns? You know, as we're sitting here today, you may look at yourself and think, I feel like the pathway. I feel like the rocky soil. Or maybe you just look at your heart and you see this mess of other loves that threaten to pull you from Jesus. And the question that you have, the question I have is, Lord, what do I do in the face of these things? And Jesus says there's one cure, just one. Listen to me. And why has Jesus given us this text? Why this morning is he once again recklessly throwing the seed of his word at the ground of our hearts? It's not because he wants to leave us sitting outside of the stable door. It's because his heart, it is that we would see and perceive and hear and understand and turn and be forgiven. It's that we would fall at his feet and pass through the stable door and be reborn. And here's how you know that's his heart. Because who is Jesus? He's not just the sower. He's the seed. The seed that, as John 12 says, out of love for us, a love that looked reckless and wasteful, falls to the ground and dies. And in dying, what does Jesus do? He bears much fruit. He is the one who is able to take our barren hearts and make them fruitful ones. He is the one who is able to take these hearts that are so full of the cares of this world and through his resurrection life is able to expel them with the expulsive power of a new affection. He is the one who tells us that as we join with him in scattering those seeds, that though the growth of this kingdom looks oh so small and oh so weak, that labor, it is never in vain because he is the one who stands behind it. There's an old Puritan named Richard Sibbs. Erica's laughing because she knows I love this guy. He uses this image of a farmer. I'm closing with this. And he says, imagine there's a farmer who has been given a 100% guarantee that if he will just sow seed and plow his field and just take care of the ground, he's 100% guaranteed he's going to have an abundant harvest. He says, do you think that farmer will turn around and just go, well, I guess I'll burn my plow? Do you think he's going to sit on his hands and think, well, there's no point in pursuing this? Sibbs goes, no, that farmer... He's going to put his shoulder to the plow even more zealously than before, not because he thinks he's strong, but because of the promise. God has made us just such a promise in Christ. He has promised that that word, when it is heard, when it is accepted, 
when it is responded to, that word, it not only can bear fruit, it will. 30, 60, and 100-fold. You know, this kingdom, it's a mysterious kingdom. It's a hidden kingdom. It isn't one that grows in the way that we would expect. It doesn't leave any monuments like the kingdoms of old. There's no pyramids. There's no coliseums. There's just a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And those things may not seem like much, but here is what those of us who now see and perceive and hear and understand can proclaim. It says that in this life, this gospel, while it may have inauspicious beginnings, it has a glorious, eternal end. A kingdom is coming, the likes of which no heart can imagine nor mind conceive a kingdom born of grace that is offered as a gift even today to you and to me. And we can rest confidently in the knowledge that our labor is not in vain while we are here because who is the one speaking? The sower and the seed, Christ Jesus himself. As the Father says in Mark 9, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.